Thanks for listening to the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington event replay channel. The replay of this event starts now. We will share the recording after the event on our website, youreyes.org, Y-O-U-R-E-Y-E-S as in Sam, dot O-R-G, and via email. Again, all of the recordings are available at youreyes.org. These recordings have timestamps that for you to navigate to the speakers that interest you most. Now I'd like to introduce Sean Curry with the Prevention of Blindness Society. All right. Thank you, Nick. And good morning, everyone. It's really great to see all you folks coming again. Happy May. Happy spring. It's already, you know, weather's already nice out. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, before we get started, and we have some really a really great guest speaker on today that I'm excited to uh, share with you all. Uh, but first, a couple of announcements. Sign up now. This summer, the Prevention of Blindness Society is going to have a new program that we hope excites you as much as it does us. Summertime is a great time for us to all relax and enjoy some good books. And there's a lot of tools available today to enjoy a good book for those of us with vision challenges. Therefore, we're happy to announce the launching of POB Reads, a summer book club for all of us. Selections for POB Reads that we'll be reading this summer are all available on the Talking Books program, the Bard mobile app, Audible, and most other Audible or audio book platforms. And the club is going to be meeting virtually on a monthly basis, and we're hopeful to have an in-person appointment at the end so that way we can all meet together. Everyone who signs up will also receive a special gift from the Prevention of Blindness Society. So if you're interested in signing up, you can visit pobreads.org or you can give our resource hotline a call at 301-951-4444. So let's all be bookworms this summer. Our next town hall is gonna be on a special date in time. So our next town hall is gonna be on Thursday, June 16th, so the day after the third Wednesday at 6 p.m. So we're doing it in the evening for June. We are gonna be meeting at a special time with a special topic. We'll be discussing the Americans with Disabilities Act, reasonable accommodations, and what are they? and how and when you can request these sorts of accommodations. So please join us on Thursday, June 16th for this unique and special discussion and feel free to bring your questions. As a reminder, our resource hotline remains open Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we have in-person appointments at our Bethesda Low Vision Learning Center on Mondays, Thursdays and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. So you can give our resource hotline a call to schedule your appointment. And if you're not on our newsletter mailing list right now, Your Eyes Today, and you're interested in signing up or receiving our resource guidebook, Your Eyes and Low Vision, give our resource hotline a call. Again, it's 301-951-4444 or email us at events at youreyes.org. As Nick mentioned, we are recording this and we have a podcast for this and we made it even easier to listen to these recordings. You can find our town hall calls on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, 
and many other platforms that you may use. You can even ask your Amazon Alexa to play recordings with just your voice. If you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can say, Alexa, play Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington podcast. Give it a try or call our Low Vision Learning Center for assistance. And for our tech talks, we have a YouTube page uh, that has these tech talks recorded. So if you missed yesterday's tech talk, which was on how you can use the how to use the Talking Books program in the Bard mobile app, you can revisit and watch it at our uh, YouTube page. And if you just go to YouTube and search for Prevention of Blindness Society, it'll be the page that pops up. Finally, the month of May is Healthy Vision Month. And we are honored to be able to partner with the National Eye Institute and the National Eye Health Education Program through NEI to be able to share some of their incredible resources as well as uh, help educate everyone in the community about your healthiest vision possible. So they have a couple great websites available. They have a Healthy Vision Month specific landing page. They have resources to learn about vision rehabilitation, which is the services that uh, Dr. Nguyen and Dr. Alibi do. And then also there's some recordings as well about uh, what National Eye Institute is doing to help serve the low vision community. And if you're interested in those services and resources, we will be sharing them later today. Uh, and you can also just visit NEI, I believe it's nei.nih.gov. Yep. And um, you'll want to look for the National Eye Health Education Program or NEHEP. All right, without further ado, I do now gonna pass over to our moderator today, Dr. Suleiman Alibi. Dr. Alibi, the floor is yours. All right, well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all again. And um, thank you again, Sean, for arranging another wonderful town hall meeting. On the call with me today is Dr. Wynn. So she will be co-moderating with me. As many of you know, my internet is notorious at this office. And so oftentimes I'll disappear, but it's not because I've gone somewhere, it's because something happened to the internet. So Dr. Nguyen will be there to take over. And I'm also going to ask her to help me co-moderate today's uh, town hall meeting. So Dr. Nguyen, um, give us a thumbs up so people know that you're there and or say hello. Hi, everyone. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, well, our guest speaker today is Omar Mohiuddin, and he's from Duke University down in North Carolina. Duke has an incredible ophthalmology department, and they also have a department for vision, rehabilitation, and performance. And Omar has been there since 2017. Prior to that, he worked in a clinical and nonprofit eye care setting and, and was doing research in the field of preventative medicine. We have a double benefit with um, Omar because he is both a master's of public health as well as an occupational therapist specializing in working with people who have low vision or who are visually impaired. So today's talk, we can certainly delve into some of that as well. And many of the, many of you on the call today have had the opportunity of working with some of the occupational therapists in this area, um, in particular, Lynn Stevens. I don't know if she's on the call today or not. 
But today we're going to ask Omar to wear both his hats, his hats as a public health person and, and as an educator, as well as perhaps we can touch on some of the issues specifically to low vision. And as Sean mentioned, May is Healthy Eye Month, and um, we want to promote good eye health as well. So without further ado, Omar, um, welcome, and thank you for being on the call today, and I'll let you take it from here. Great, thank you, and hello, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Just a quick thumb, thumbs up. All right. So thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to speak to your group today about public health and how it relates to low vision. Uh, this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart, and I hope by the end of this short talk that everyone who's listening in today or later on is able to connect with this topic and go on to become public health advocates in their own communities and households. I'd like to share a little bit about my background, uh, discuss public health and the different levels of public health interventions, and include some remarks about the National Eye Health Education Program that Sean had mentioned earlier, and then finally conclude with an opportunity for some Q&A if time allows towards the end. So a little bit about myself, like Dr. Alibai said, my name is Omar Mahidin, and I'm an occupational therapist specializing in low vision rehabilitation, uh, practicing at the Duke Eye Center, which is located in Durham, North Carolina. And so occupational therapy is actually a second career for me, and it was one that I was kind of led to by my interest in public health. So I received my master's in public health from the University of Alabama at Birmingham with a focus on health education, health communication, and health behavior. I went on to work in clinical and nonprofit settings in the field of eye care and also do research in the field of preventive medicine and minority health and health disparities, looking at ways to kind of best educate not only the general population, but ask at-risk groups about prevention and managing health conditions. So this journey for me started a little bit over 10 years ago when I learned that the rates of chronic and age-related eye diseases, which are leading causes of vision loss, may not double, but triple in the next few decades, which really sparked my curiosity and had me starting to question, you know, why are these numbers going up? What impact and burden does this have on the individuals with vision loss, on our healthcare system, on our social services systems? our workforce and our economy and you know what is there that we can actually do about it. So looking at the most recent numbers on people living with low vision and blindness in the United States, it sits around 2.2% of the population, which is roughly six to seven million today. But these numbers are expected to rise to nine and possibly 12 million by 2050. And that's by conservative estimates. So I always like to joke, you know, like cataracts, cataracts are not contagious, right? So what's going on here? Uh, why are these numbers going up? Well, it's in large part due to the aging of America and the fact that there are and there will be more older adults now and in the future than there were 60 years ago. So we had a tremendous um, boom in population following World War II, which we refer to as our baby boomer generation. But these baby boomers went on to have children and their children had children. So population growth has been exponential. And we can also thank public health measures um, for a part of that with advancements in medication and treatments for health conditions, sanitation, housing, um, a growing economy, which has allowed us to um, tack on almost an additional 30 years of life expectancy um, in just the last 100 years. So looking at these numbers, back in 1960, there were roughly 5 million people in this 
older adult category, which may be 75 plus. And we're looking ahead to 2060, we're looking at that number being closer to 25 million. So this means that there will be more individuals in that older adult bracket developing uh, age-related eye disease, diseases and living with visual impairments and the functional limitations that may develop as a result of that. So this means more individuals who are impacted in their ability to remain independent, to age in place, to work. As we all know that fewer and fewer people are able to retire at the age of 65 and have to continue working. Um, their ability to drive, manage their medications, read, write, pay their bills, socialize, uh, participate in leisure and daily activities, which can impact our overall quality of life, our mental health, and our well-being. So this led me to pursue my degree in occupational therapy. So I can help this growing population by educating folks on um, uh, educating and demonstrating strategies, uh, tools that will help people continue to lead safe and independent lives and maintain and improve the, that quality of life of theirs. So getting to kind of the crux of today's topic, you know, what is public health? Um, we often think about it as community health or population health, but by definition, it is the promotion and protection of the health and well-being of people and the communities in which we live, work, and play. And we do that through education, we do that through policymaking, and we do that through research. And so kind of without knowing it, we all became pseudo public health warriors in the last two to two and a half years working through this pandemic. We were keeping up with the news, we were keeping up with research and development of vaccines and treatment options for COVID and policies such as social distancing and the use of personal protective equipment to keep ourselves and others around us and those who we come in contact with safe and healthy. And I think we can all agree that it does not take someone having a master's in public health to actually participate and have a role in public health, no matter if it's within your own household or within your own local community. So the way I like to educate others about public health is framing it from the perspective of prevention methods at three different levels, which I will connect to low vision today by discussing the work of the National Eye Health Education Program, which we call NEHIP. Um, which is within the National Eye Institute. It's one of 27 institutes and centers of the National Institutes for Health, which I believe you're all aware of, given that it's right there in your own backyard. And the goal of the National Eye Health Education Program, or NEHEP, is to work with strategic partners like Prevention of Blindness to promote eye health as a public health priority and to prevent vision loss through outreach and education. We have over 60 public and private organizations in our network of strategic partners committed to promoting eye health and eye health education across the nation. We also have six different and very unique eye health education programs within NEHIP. And I am here as a member of the Vision Rehabilitation Workgroup, which raises awareness of specifically vision rehab services available for children and adults with low vision. So without further ado, um, we're going to dive into these three different levels of public health intervention and learn a little bit about public health and how it relates to low vision. Omar, just a second. Yes. You, are you able to turn up your microphone just a bit? Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I don't know if I can turn up my microphone, but happy to scoot closer if that helps. Yes, yes to I think some people are just saying it's a little soft. That's all. Okay, Sorry. I'm, I'm happy to project and talk a little bit louder as well. There we please go. stop me again if I start to to go soft again. Okay, no, thank you, sorry. All right, so let's first talk about the first level of prevention, which is 
primary prevention, prevention, which is working to help prevent an, a disease before it begins or an injury before it happens. So this may include proactive measures that we take to change or modify our lifestyles by eating better, exercising, getting immunizations, and not participating in high-risk health behaviors such as smoking to prevent the onset of diseases such as type 2 diabetes. It includes creating and enforcing policies and legislations to reduce environmental hazards such as carbon emissions, promote health with better school lunches, and safety practices such as wearing seatbelts. It also includes research done into the development of drugs or gene therapies to cure or prevent different conditions. And while most of you listening in may have low vision, meaning they have already been diagnosed with an eye condition, you still have a large part to play in primary prevention. It is important that for everyone listening in kind of near and far to discuss the importance of eye health within your own families and communities, especially if there is higher risk given that there's a family history of eye disease, or that there are uh, certain racial and ethnic groups that may be more prone or at risk of developing certain eye conditions. So just like we um, rely on our strategic partners to get out the word about NEHEP um, uh, programs and education, we also rely on our individuals and our patients and clients to also kind of spread the word about um, eye health. Um, so, so I would encourage you all to kind of speak to your friends and family about the importance of routine eye care. And that starts uh, early, especially. And um, it all starts with a simple trip to the eye doctor for a dilated eye exam. So it's been mentioned once or twice already, but May is actually Healthy Vision Month. And if you visit the NEI website, you will find resources for educating yourself to talk to your families and communities about eye health finding providers to get a dilated eye exam and options for low cost and free eye exams, as well as tips to keep your eyes healthy and safe, which includes eating a heart healthy diet, wearing sunglasses outdoors to protect your eyes from the sun, taking visual rest breaks and wearing protective eyewear if you're participating in high risk activities such as sports to prevent eye injuries. So today we've come together as a low vision community during this town hall, but each and every one of you have your own social networks and your own communities that you may participate in and identify with. And without realizing it, you are actually an ambassador for eye health and um, help, uh, eye health prevention. So there are still many out there that don't know that they need to see an eye doctor and have a dilated eye exam, even if they have good vision or have never worn glasses. I know that personally, I see my dentist twice a year, and though I take care of my teeth by brushing regularly and flossing kind of regularly, and even though I haven't had a cavity since I was a younger child, that the only way to tell what's going on with my own oral health is and take care of those problems like sealing or filling a cavity before it leads to tooth decay or losing a tooth would be to go and see my dentist and do it routinely. So that's a little bit about primary prevention, which is stopping something before it begins. The second level of prevention is secondary prevention, which is working to keep a disease from progressing or getting worse. So we know that by and large, there are no cures for many of these age-related eye diseases. However, early detection is very key in many cases. So let's take, for instance, glaucoma, um, or what they call the silent thief of sight. There may be changes in your vision uh, before you notice a change in functional vision by having a dilated eye exam early and routinely, 
You may be able to work with your doctors to help manage your condition through medications, um, which may include drops, surgical treatments, um, to keep your disease from progressing and leading to further vision loss. For the folks out there with macular degeneration, they, they are often felt discouraged visiting their retina specialists, as every time they go and see them, they always hear it's getting worse and there's nothing that can be done about it. But it's still so important to see your retina specialist uh, regularly to monitor for signs of changes to the back of the eye, which could be addressed and prevent further vision loss. So learn to be an advocate, not only for yourself, but others to go and see their eye doctors frequently as they are recommended to do so. Adhering to the medical therapies and lifestyle changes that are prescribed to keep your visual condition from worsening and reminding your friends and family members and communities of the importance of routine eye care once you or someone else has been diagnosed. And the final level of prevention is tertiary prevention, which is working to reduce the impact and the burden of your eye disease um, in the long run and preventing the development of other comorbidities um, that may impact your quality of life. So this may include persons with chronic diseases such as diabetes who are managing their blood sugar levels to keep from developing neuropathy in their feet which may then lead to a fall, which may then lead to a broken hip or bone, which then may lead to a very expensive stay in the hospital and a stint in rehab. Um, this may include rehabilitation programs who have experienced more acute conditions like stroke or a heart attack from cardiovascular problems, so pre-existing, to help strengthen and condition them to where they're able to walk, talk, participate in life once more. Now, when it comes to losing vision, you know, vision impacts almost everything that we do from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed at night. Whether it's being unable to see well enough to identify and take your medications properly or without dropping and losing them, or checking your blood sugar to help manage your condition from getting worse, safely cooking healthy meals and exercising, being eligible to drive, which can impact your ability to remain independent and lead to isolation, and participating in and keeping employment, which comes along with health, benefit, health benefits often. Um, and these are just a few ways that low vision may lead to other burdens that keep us from maintaining our health. And equally impo as important as physical health is just the general ability to see to do our everyday activities you want and need to do. So kind of no matter how mundane they may seem, whether it's brushing your teeth or picking out your outfits and identifying clothing color, um, reading a book or religious text, uh, watching your favorite television show, playing with your grandchild or socializing, these are all things that give us a sense of meaning and belonging, self-worth and identity, which can impact our mental health and overall well-being when they are taken away or disrupted. Now, we know that two-thirds of individuals with low vision may experience at least one depressive symptom throughout their vision loss journey, but one-third of them may outright be experiencing uh, depression at some point as a result um, of loss of participation, independence, and identity from visual impairment. So counseling and mental health services are also included, included in tertiary prevention as it may lead to someone feeling burnt out and unable to cope to manage their condition. So tertiary prevention is actually a space that I fit into as an occupational therapist, 
a low vision rehabilitation specialist and a member of the NEHEP Vision Rehab Work Group to promote the awareness of the services available to reduce the impact of the, these diseases in our daily lives by learning about resources, strategies, and the tools to keep folks doing the things that they want to do. So our listeners today are also part of tertiary prevention to learn about ways to reduce burden and can continue participation in daily activities safely and effectively and spreading the word about vision rehabilitation services within your own networks. You know, too often as a clinician, I hear from patients, where were you 10, 10 years ago? Why didn't I learn about vision rehabilitation sooner? So speak to not only the people that you know, but go back to your doctors and thank them for plugging you into vision rehabilitation services or connecting you with POV um, and the impact that's made on your own personal life. So these referring physicians can then go on to refer more of their patients, get them connected, and hopefully refer them sooner at the onset of vision loss so we can provide them the equipment and tools and strategies and educate them upfront about what to expect and what kind of things may help you in the future. And by listening in today and attending today's town halls and the past POB talks, you know, you are enriching yourself and those who you may share this knowledge with about public health, but also creating a sense of community so you don't feel as alone in your eye disease. So I'd like to take this moment to kind of personally acknowledge and commend um, uh, prevention of Blindness for creating this platform and all the great work that they do as a NEHEP partner to promote public health across really all three levels of prevention that we touched on today. And a special thanks to Sean and Dr. Alibai and the rest of the POB team just for the opportunity for uh, to allow me to come and speak today um, to help get the word out about public health and kind of low vision advocacy. And on that note, I'd like to kind of open things up for a Q&A, and I certainly will welcome Dr. Alibi and Dr. Nguyen um, to jump in and help answer any questions that may relate to anything personal, uh, medical. Yeah, no, thank you, Omar. That was really wonderful, and you presented everything very, very nicely for us. And we're fortunate. We live in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area, where we do have tremendous resources. And for many of you on the call, you know that the National Institutes of Health is in our backyard, in our neighborhood, just up the road in Bethesda um, from where I see patients sometimes as well. So we're very fortunate to have this setting. And many times I feel that people perhaps don't take advantage of the resources and things that are available to them and I'm going to start off with the first question that way, Omar, is what, what is your impression of that? Do you, do you feel that sometimes it's hard to get the message out to people that these resources exist? Um, on the call today, we have about 30 people, and I know a lot of these are people who regularly attend our town halls and listen to um, our town hall meetings, which have been saved. But do you find that's a bit of a struggle is how do we reach the people who are perhaps not on this town hall meeting today, whose doctors are not perhaps telling them that, you know, seek out vision rehabilitation or other resources? And um, have you thought about are there better ways of doing this or are there other ways of doing this? Absolutely. So, I mean, getting the word about, about out about vision rehab is 
is a struggle. Um, uh, we know our own people, we know our own communities, but how do we reach people in rural areas who may have no idea that we exist? I mean, I have clients that tell me, you know, I've walked by your clinic so many times when I come to the eye center, I had no idea that you existed. And so, um, you know, earlier I said, like, go back and talk to your doctors if you've already been plugged in and tell them this was really helpful to me and you should refer more patients and refer them earlier. Because just like NEHEP, we rely on our strategic partners and their network of people to get the word out at large. You know, I'd love if we could do a, um, a national campaign. That just doesn't do it right. Like, remember how they had that Got Milk campaign back in the day? I don't think Vision Rehab is a lobby group as strong as the dairy industry. But, um, you know, we rely on other people to get the messages out. And everyone on this call, we also rely on you to talk to your own communities um, and get the word out. But um, with NEHEP, we have over 60 partner organizations and they're able to get out messages. Um, but certainly there's there's more to do. And I think that if we could educate just the general optometrist and the general ophthalmologist and even the primary care physicians that referring to those um, secondary providers before they get to tertiary care um, would be great. Right, right. No, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And um, this is part of what the prevention of blindness does a lot of, which is to meet with ophthalmologists directly in their offices, in their practices, and create that awareness that, look, there are resources um, for vision rehabilitation that you could take advantage of. Um, and many people worry about reimbursement. You know, they often say, well, is it, if I see a specialist, is it covered by insurance? You know, is this something that I have to pay for out of pocket? Um, and I think for you, like for us as practitioners, of course, our services are reimbursed by Medicare, for example. And the resources we have in the community, a lot of them are free. And, uh, you know, being able to take advantage of those things just requires somebody referring you. Sometimes we um, sign forms that certify you as being visually impaired and therefore eligible for whatever the services, be it talking books or the, um, um, the, the transportation alternatives like Metro access and so on and so forth. So um, I just wonder in your area in Duke in North Carolina, are there other things that you are doing or is it similar to what I'm describing what we've been doing in this area? Yeah, so certainly um, it depends on where you live, right, and what resources are available. So um, we are lucky to have a fairly strong state social services organization, North Carolina, called Division of Services for the Blind, and they have a really great infrastructure, and they also refer to us. We've referred to them and their patients or clients or consumers, as they call them, tell them about like, oh, uh, they were able to educate me and provide me recommendations for tools. And they said that if I come to you, you may be able to actually provide them to me at no cost. Um, uh, getting out the message within our own communities. Um, we, there's several nonprofits here in North Carolina. Um, uh, we have a lot of industries for the blind here in the state. Um, 
So just making good relationships with not just medical providers, but our other constituents and strategic partners in our state, whether it's a factory for the blind, whether it's a school for a blind, um, it helps get the word out. Um, I hope that answers your question, but yeah, yeah, no, every state is so different, but I can kind of speak to just North Carolina. And I know personally, I may go do small lectures within continuing care retirement communities. It's a captive audience who maybe a third of them may have low vision or uncorrected refractive error. Correct. Right. And so they just, sometimes we're getting over this, um, these thoughts that vision loss is a normal part of aging. And that's not always true. There's usually some type of eye disease involved, um, especially if your vision is changing and changing rapidly later. And so um, some people may go, yeah, I can't see as well, but I don't need to see the eye doctor. I'm, I'm just getting old. I'm like, no, there's something that could be done about it and there's help available. So even just gen uh, educating the general public um, is something that we do here. That's, yeah, that's a very good point, Omar. And I think you made that very well, that don't assume that just because you're getting older, well, of course you should be having trouble seeing. It may be true that aging causes problems of the eyes and chronic diseases that, that still need to be treated. I often hear from patients that my doctor just said, well, there's nothing else they could do. Maybe not from a medical standpoint in terms of medical treatment, but that doesn't mean there's nothing else we can do from the things that Omar has been talking about here, which is to support you with resources in the community and to prevent secondary comorbidities that might occur because of your vision problems. You know, you may have trouble seeing the edge of steps and curbs. So you increase your risk of falling. If you fall and you're older, then you have the risk of complications from that fall. It may in fact impact your ability to stay independent in your own homes. And I know a lot of the patients we see worry about this, that can I continue to live independently or am I just now resigned to move into some type of assisted living facility? So I think these are all very valid points that come up. I'd like to open the floor now to our callers and see if there are any questions. And, and Dr. Wen, if you have any questions, of course, please do um, go ahead and ask them. But opening up the floor now, and Sean and Nick will keep track of who's asking questions. If I don't see you, raise your hands. Please, anybody have any comments or you want to talk about resources that you've used or something that you've experienced or that you wish that we had better access to, um, please go ahead and raise your hand or interrupt here and, and ask your question. Hey, so we got a quick question um, from uh, someone uh, before today. They, have, they want to learn a little bit more about how they may be able to effectively reach uh, immigrant communities whose English is not their first language and what sort of materials and uh, outreach programming that's available perhaps down in Duke or through the NEI? That's a great question. So um, one of uh, NEHEP's um, education programs is Ojo Visión, which is a Spanish language 
um, education program about eye health and eye health education. So that those resources are actually available on the NEHEB website for you to check out. Um, for other populations, certainly, um, you know, we we live in such a diverse <laughs> country, right? Oh yeah. We have, which makes us so unique. And sometimes it's just finding advocates within smaller communities um, to speak within their own churches or um, houses of worship. I mean, those are different ways that we can get the word out. Um, health screenings or health fairs that take place in some rural communities. Um, that's something that I worked on a while back um, in the Southeast when I was living in Alabama. Um, uh, not everyone had access to the internet. Not everyone went to the doctor. Not everyone listened in on the radio, but everyone had a, had a cell phone. <laughs> and so we actually did some research on getting out health messages about, hey, there's a health screening um, on Saturday um, through text messages. Um, and so we you know, look at different ways of getting the word out. We call it channeling in public health, but find your channels, find your gatekeepers. Um, I've also worked in research working with what we call health ministry leaders, which is just a nurse or a cousin of a nurse who attends your church. And maybe if a, a, someone in that church goes like, ah, there's something wrong with my, my knee, it hurts, they may go to the health ministry leader first. And then they may go, I think you should go see your doctor or this doctor. Or So having uh, uh, language appropriate resources or pamphlets in those places or in those communities um, I've also worked on some research just, um, and this is kind of a little bit odd, but you'll kind of see the beauty of it, but um, uh, getting out the word about self-screening for breast cancer through um, beauticians in the African-American community, because oftentimes African-American women may be doing their hair and be captive in a chair for three hours. So why not educate someone about how to perform a self-breast exam um, with someone who you feel comfortable with um, and can speak to you and you feel obviously like more open about it in that safe space versus somewhere else. Oh, that's wild. Very creative, very creative, Omar. And for the callers here, just know that when we ever refer you to the state rehabilitation resources in Maryland, the Department of Rehabilitation Services, in Virginia, the Virginia Department for the Blind and Vision Impaired, in DC, Rehab Services Administration. They have the resources to provide their services in just about any language. Uh, like Omar says, we're a very diverse community here in the metropolitan area, of course. And so often when I make the referral, I will say this person only speaks Spanish or this person only speaks Vietnamese or whatever language. And pretty much they're able to cover those um, visits with the patients, with their clients, as you said, Omar, they call them clients and consumers, um, and communicate in the person's native language, in the native tongue. So that, that definitely helps with this rehabilitation process. So yeah, that's, but I think you, you came up with some very good things, which I had never thought of. That was a that was really helpful. Joe, you have a question. I see your hand up. Hold the alert. Audio now unmuted. Thank you, Omar. Hand now lowered. So, um, so I actually work for the Prevention of Blindness um, with uh, 
as a, a low vision resource navigator. So we work directly with our clients and uh, this outstanding presentation about the personal advocacy, that, that is so important. Um, I guess two things that really cropped up. The, the first thing um, that you did mention, Omar, is that I think folks experiencing low vision, usually uh, what you said, almost two thirds of them at some point have experienced some level of, of depression and and in, I guess a, one third have some active depression. So <clears throat> this is always a challenge for us as non-medical professionals um, because obviously there is a situation where you notice that, um, well, you, you sense, and I'm just trying to think of a tactful way uh, as a non-medical person, we could um, perhaps encourage, or if there's a way to, to encourage someone to kind of reach out. And I have a little second part. Um, uh, Dr. Alibi uh, brought up, I guess, Saturday, a really, a, a term that really um, <clears throat> uh, brought my awareness up. It's called learned helplessness. And um, I was a disability program manager before this. And, and unfortunately, I, I do see that sometimes in our community and almost like a, uh, a situation, almost the object advocate opposite of advocacy so I don't know if you could just touch on that a little bit um because obviously you know the the whole purpose is to help the individual help themselves but um I, I really like some of your strategies but um if you'd be open to addressing those I'd, I'd appreciate yeah, it yeah yeah th that's an excellent point it's 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 very tricky to not only screen appropriately for mental health issues and then have those difficult conversations at times yeah. um but here at the duke ice center we're lucky enough to have our own social worker mm -hmm. and so whereas yeah. we may not dive into all of those right there during an occupational therapy visit right. we may during our intake process with our um our um ophthalmic assistant or ophthalmic technician sure um ask about, you know, how are you dealing with the vision loss? And if they say something to us that raises a flag, that's an automatic referral to social work or some talking point that we can kind of launch from, right? Yes. And say like, I noticed that you told one of our team members that you're having a little bit difficult time coping with this, or you're worried about employment or um, paying your bills or whatever it is, just offer them, would you like to speak to someone about this? And if not, we can have them call you in a week or make a referral and they'll reach out to them. So we can still focus on what we need to do there, right? but then don't let them fall through the cracks or don't ignore that crucial part of their life. Right. And the reason why sometimes we say, we'll do the referral or we have them call you later is that you know, oftentimes people go through this vision loss experience and they're scared. They're very yeah. anxious and they're coming Absolutely. to the eye center again and they always hear bad news. We want to be that hope for them, right? Absolutely. We want this to be a positive experience to where they come in and, you know, we're not patronizing them or anything, but we are just like, you know, like, mm -hmm. let's start it off on the right foot like we are here to learn we're here to empower you we're here to educate and so let's be productive in our time together yes. and accomplish as much as we can and make sure you get plugged into everything and when they see all the benefits of all these other great things that we're able to do with them they may get excited about mental health services and counseling and they see oh this is a tool just like every other tool whether yes. it's a 
a flashlight or a pair of sunglasses. This is another tool that I can help to be the best version of myself and cope and adapt to this vision loss. Great. Outstanding. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, that that's an, you know, I hear Joe and where that was coming from as well, because we had a, a meeting this Saturday, which was very interesting. And sometimes, Omar, we find people may not want to avail themselves of certain resources because they might feel that the caregiver or their loved ones or whatever may feel they're capable of doing more than they really are. So they're afraid of saying, well, I could take advantage of Metro access. For example, in this area, we have a um, uh, public transportation services for people with disabilities called Metro access. And it's a door to door service. So sometimes I'll say to my patients, you know, you always have your son, your daughter, whoever bring you, but that means they have to take a day off from work. Um, you can use Metro Access, it's door to door and it's, it's affordable. And they may not say anything, but the implication is, if I take advantage of this, then my son, daughter, whoever will think I can get around better than I can and they won't come and help me, right? This is sort of a double-edged sword. So I don't know if you encounter things like that where people don't avail themselves to certain resources because they might feel by doing so, um, they will lose the support system that they're now really dependent on. Certainly, certainly. So uh, as clinicians, we're, we're always taught to be client-centered and whatever that patient's goals are for themselves, that, that's also our goals, right? And we want to help them meet those goals. So if the, even though we may feel like this person could be completely independent living on their own, that, that's still their ultimate choice at the end of the day, and we need to support that. Um, and so if, if they find value in having that, that relationship with their care partner or caretaker or adult child, then we have to respect that. Um, but we can do as much as we can to empower and educate, right? And give them the tools to, to run with it. Um, so interpersonal dynamics is tricky and challenging. Um, and sometimes when I see clients and they've come in with a spouse or an adult child or friend or family member, you know, I like to engage them right away because they may be decision makers, whereas we may have an older adult that go, oh, I'm 94. I don't, I'm not going to spend $2,000 on a CCTV. I may not be here tomorrow. And then the adult child may pipe up and say, it's your money. <laughs> And if it's going to give you better quality of life, I would rather you spend that money on yourself now than inherit it later or whatever. And so you, there's a lot of psychology that goes into this and a lot of interpersonal stuff, but I, I think that's that has to be handled on a on a one by one kind of basis. And every every relationship is so unique and different. Exactly, I think that that's very true, and I'm sure. Dr. Wen, you probably echo that, and uh, that comes up a lot during an evaluation. And that's part of what we do is in our clinician capacity is to try and determine what are the dynamics there between you, the visually impaired individual, and your family member, your caregiver, your loved one, or whoever it is. And ultimately, 
we are focused on what you define. You know, many patients I see, I'll say, hello, what brings you in today? Well, I can't see. Okay, that's a good starting point. But what would you like to see? Everything. I just want to get my eyes back and see better. And that's ultimately what everybody wants, of course. But assuming that the condition is chronic now and we have a situation where we just have to work with what you have, you have to start to define and refine what it is that you are most unable to do now because of the change to your vision. What is it that you are striving most to achieve? And that's, that's how all these resources and strategies are going to be targeted. They're going to be targeted to what is it you can do to improve your safety, your independence, or your quality of life. And, and I think that's the most important thing. Dr. Nguyen, anything you wanted to add? I'm sorry, I haven't <laughs> tagged you yet. It's okay. Um, I just wanted to make sure everyone else got to be able to ask their questions as well. Um, but, you know, Omar, I really appreciate what you've said so far. Um, I tend to talk low, so again, interrupt me if you can't hear me. Um, but one thing that I'm curious about, I just wanted to shed going back to the raising awareness. Um, what's interesting to me when I think back on when I was in school, where were the limitations and why are patients still coming and saying, I've never heard of you before. Um, and I realized that everybody learns different things in different school. I wanted to know how did you become aware of the low vision community and all of that in your public awareness? I mean, your public health program, um, because from what I hear, not everyone gets exposed to the low vision side. Um, and in terms of optometry schools, not every school, they teach it, but not every student goes through that rotation as well. Go and ahead. I wonder, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I wonder, are we doing enough on our end to promote that for the patients that need it? And I think you're right. Everybody has a big role, whether we have a degree in public health or not. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know about you in that yeah. case. So my origin story, if you can call it that, um, I was born and raised in a town called Talladega and everyone knows it for NASCAR out in Alabama, but it's also the home for the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind. Um, and the Helen Keller School, which is the only state school for multi-sensor impairment in Alabama. And not only did I see deaf or people with deafness or blindness or visual impairment out in the community growing up, um, I also had a lot of people who were on the street that I grew up with who had visual impairment. And so I was always cognizant of low vision and multi-sensory impairment growing up, and that never really left me. So I knew that there were people out there. It wasn't like I was not exposed to it. I was actually exposed to it from a very early age. But then when I moved to a bigger city, I didn't see it as much, but I was still so interested. I'm like, where are they? What are they doing in life now? Where, what are they doing as adults? Um, and so uh, when I got interested in public health, I was still interested in eye care. So I sought out opportunities to learn more about um, global health and low vision um, <clears throat> and um, I was getting kind of tired of doing research at some point because I wanted to work with people and I was just doing a bunch of 
data entry. And um, I decided to, to, to switch gears and I decided I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this and I'm gonna do something else. And I decided to join AmeriCorps for a year. And as luck ha has it, I got partnered with a company or a nonprofit called Sight Savers America, which they do free eye exams, eyeglasses, surgeries for kids with low vision or, or with refractive error. And then they had a low vision department. And then from there, I got connected with UAB's low vision department, which is the University of Alabama, Birmingham and the Callahan Eye Center. Um, and uh, I just made random connections and I met people. And then I chose to go to UAB for my occupational therapy degree because they had a stronger focus on vision rehab. And so I went into OT knowing this is what I wanted to do. Um, and I was lucky enough to train under Dr. Mary Warren. And then when it came time to do my low vision field works, I sought out every opportunity, even though my field work coordinator was like, you got to do other OT stuff. You can't do everything low vision. And so they sent me out to Center for the Visually Impaired in Atlanta and then um, Envision Vision Rehabilitation Center out in Wichita, where I got to um, uh, train under Dr. Donald Fletcher. So it was just me networking or things kind of falling into my lap or connecting with the right people at the right time. But I've always had an interest in eye care and I knew that's what I wanted to do before I went into OT. But um, Duke now has a new OTD program and I am doing what I can to kind of energize, the, energize this next uh, generation of OTs to, to possibly form an interest in, in, in vision. I know eyes aren't sexy to everybody, but um, <laughs> When it comes to occupational therapy, I feel like low vision rehab is OT at its very core. You need your vision to do every occupation with the exception of maybe sleeping, but still, you still need to know whether the sun is down to go to bed or not. And, you know, so it is, it's important for everything that you do. Thank you for that. Um, but I think that's how a lot of us in this field um, as clinicians got into low vision because we just have something tugged at our hearts and, um, you know, I hope that all of us can tug other people's hearts to do the same for everybody. So um, I was just curious about, you know, how you came about it. Yeah. yeah, I always joke that if you had met me 15 years ago, this is, and they asked me what I'd be doing in the future, this would not have been it, <laughs> right? And so it's just, um, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. It's the, the people that you meet along the way and the experiences that you've had and it, it, it shapes your journey and kind of pushes you. And I, I could not be happier about where I am now and who I get to work with and the type of work I get to do. And then um, by participating in NEHIP's work group, I get to flex that public health muscle that I thought was kind of laid to rest a long time ago, but I still get to do public health work every day. Yeah, no, thank you, Omar. And speaking of public health, I want to tie in something that Libby has been putting in the chat, if anybody's seen that. <clears throat> it's talking about the Checkered Eye Project. And Libby, thanks for putting that out. You know, and, and here's how I want to phrase that is, you wonder where does vision scale in terms of other morbidities that occur, um, especially with age? You know, if you ask someone, as you get older, what do you, what do you think of, right? And most people would say, I think of having more trouble walking. I have, I think of having more trouble hearing. Um, 
but they wouldn't automatically say, I think of not being able to see, to recognize faces. They wouldn't think of that right off the bat. So we tend to think of vision as black and white. And I'd like anybody to correct me if they have a different opinion on this. And we think of vision as either this person can see or they're blind, right? And we've got identifiers. We have the white cane, which typically the public assumes means blindness. Blindness means close your eyes, you see nothing at all, that kind of blindness. But for most of the people on this call, we're in that gray zone, which we call low vision. And so this is, I think, what Libby is talking about with her in her chat thing about the checkered eye project, which is a symbol other than the white cane, because the white cane has this sometimes misperception. People go, well, why are you using a white cane if, if you can still turn your head and look and make eye contact with me? You know, they get, they get confused. The public isn't as well educated about what is this sort of gray zone called low vision? And so this checkered eye project um, is a symbol, which is something I think that started in Canada. And we have not universally accepted it in the United States, although we're trying. And we, as you've pointed out, Libby, we did, as POB did, um, put out masks, which had this checkerboard on it um, to sort of draw attention to there's something else beyond blindness. It's not so black and white. It's not, you can see or you don't see anything at all. There is this gray zone. Um, and again, I don't know how effectively a, a person from the public looking at a checkerboard with an eye, which has a checkerboard in it, understands what it means. Or as we discussed on the meeting in Saturday, how well do we understand what somebody who's visually impaired sees and doesn't see, and then how to address those needs with them? So it's a, it's a whole different area. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about all these things, Omar. Awareness certainly is a huge part of that. And you're right, it's hard to adopt something so new when there, there may not be enough people out there wearing the checkered eye um, uh, button, but I think the more we can push it and the more people are exposed to it, the more it may have people question, what's that about? Or, or I'm actually paying attention to it, it says low vision right on it, right? Um, so certainly we give out um, the buttons and information for checkered eye in our clinic very often. It's actually part of our big handout that everyone goes home with. Oh. Because you're right, it's not everyone is a cane user. They don't have that universal signifier to the rest of the world that they have a visual impairment. So, you know, oftentimes people get misconstrued as being intoxicated in the daytime as they're stumbling around or they're being rude because someone's waving to them across the street and they don't wave back. And it's not a matter of they were ignoring them. It's that they did not see them or someone's taking a little bit longer in a buffet line or a checkout aisle. So having that low vision button um, through the checkered eye project is a great way in that moment to educate and be an icebreaker as well. So it, it starts at some point, right? So all, all movements are grassroots at some, some point in time. So um, I would certainly encourage everyone to start using the checkered eye and be more 
um, public with it. So every time they walk out, put it on. But then I also understand just like cane users that there's oftentimes stigma associated with these things that right. people are gonna assume that if you have a cane that they need to grab you by the wrist and drag you sideways places um, that you cannot see, therefore you cannot hear and start yelling at you louder, um, even though your hearing is fine. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, I encourage people to, to wear it and do what makes them feel comfortable. And if they want to be an advocate to where, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna start a conversation, right? <laughs> but not everyone wants to have conversations with strangers on a daily basis, but be that advocate. So that's my whole big spiel is be that advocate, be that person to educate because it's through everyone on this call and everyone listening in that we are gonna get the word out. It's not gonna be through social media. It's not gonna be um, through national campaigns. It's, it's through our partners and, our, and it's through our constituents. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And, and like you said, um, Omar, there's that question of, do you want to have that label? You know, somebody might not feel that they want to be seen as being visually impaired. I see many people who are still working, who are not necessarily older now, but they're working age. And they'll say to me, well, at work, nobody knows that I'm visually impaired. And I'll go, oh my gosh. So how do you manage? Oh, I'll say things like, I forgot my glasses today. Could you please read that to me? Or I missed the PowerPoint today. I was sitting at the back. Could you um, just go over what you were saying? And I'll say, but why don't you let people know? And they'll say, if I do, it may put me at a disadvantage with my employers or my clients if they're, you know, consulting and going out to see clients and things. So many times people don't want that label and it may be perceived as being um, detrimental in some ways, but many times I think our society will not come to accept that Yes, people can be blind and still productive and lead normal lives, and people can be low vision and still be able to see to do certain things and not to see to do other things. And, right. and everything is not black and white. We know that in life. Everything is not so black and white. But it's, it's creating this understanding and awareness can only come through education and meetings like this. So everyone on this call should hopefully be an advocate like Omar says you are all here as advocates as well about what it is to have a visual impairment but that doesn't have to have a negative connotation meaning oh well in that case you better just sit in that corner and stay out of the way you still lead normal productive lives and as a society we increasingly accept that yeah well of course there's a ramp up into this building because if there were only steps how would somebody in a wheelchair get up there you know we don't we don't go why have they built this ramp isn't it silly everybody goes no it's such a good idea to have a ramp or how come these doors open by themselves are we just getting lazy no it could be that somebody with a physical handicap has trouble opening the doors um and I know Vijay Gupta is on this call today who has done a lot to advocate for public buildings being 
not only accessible for people with physical handicaps, but vision handicaps. And that's taken a whole lot of discussion with architects, interior designers, um, building engineers, and so on and so forth to create that awareness. Otherwise, people build buildings and factor in physical handicaps and miss the vision things altogether, which, which doesn't work either. So it goes back to what we've been saying lately a lot on POB here, the prevention of blindness, it takes a village, you know, and we all have our role and play our part, but we all have to do it together and in a consistent way and use the same type of vocabulary and language before we're going to get this message out in a way that the public who may not be exposed to this will understand. Um, Sean, I see you have your hand up. Did you want to say something, add something? Yeah, just one one thing, uh, and we kind of broached on it a little bit. Is um, Omar, if you were gonna if if you were to tell a blind or vision impaired person two or three things they can take they can do you know tomorrow to kind of be an advocate for themselves or for their family members, what would you encourage people to do? Well, certainly, if you are the one with low vision or an eye disease, um, don't forget about yourself. Self-care is the first and most important thing. So be good about getting to your doctor's appointments and doing everything in your power to do what it takes to take care of yourself first. Um, I know that, you know, in, in, in folks with diabetes, there's something called diabetes burnout, where they just get so tired of managing their disease to where they're going, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to cheat a little bit and have that extra donut, or I'm not going to give myself, you know, or I won't check my blood sugar today. Like with any chronic disease, you've got to, got to be on top of things um, and, and, and see your eye doctors and uh, see your other specialists. So first thing is just be better about taking care of yourself. And then, then you can try helping people within your own family and communities. So you know, if you developed an eye condition that there's a strong family history or, um, you know, and some people joke about, oh, I don't need to see an eye doctor. I've got perfect vision. Just not give them the reality of, you know, this could happen to you, but, you know, just explain that you're at higher risk. And so as someone who loves you as a friend or family member, it would mean a lot to me if you would just think about it or consider it um and the importance of it so you know approach it from a place of loving and kindness you never want to um you know speak down or tell people what they need to do um like you need to go see the eye doctor you need to go do this you need to go do that so just approach it as you know um if if someone were to come to you before your vision loss what would how would you like for them to have approached you about it um, what were the barriers to you seeking out eye care? Because honestly, uh, this is maybe back in 2009 that I did more research into this. Um, uh, when it came to why people don't seek out routine eye care, number one was it, it gets put on the back burner. It's not as important because if it's not broke, why fix it? And then the second thing was transportation. Um, believe it or not. So if you can't see well enough or see well enough to drive or you don't drive, how are you supposed to get to the eye doctor and who's going to drive you back if you're dilated potentially? So 
um, maybe you can be like, hey, there's this transportation resource to get you to and from the eye doctor, or um, my son can drive you, or, you know, like, let's make this work. So um, think about what, what are the barriers in their life to seeking out a dilated eye exam, and then working with them to get them to that point. So advocate for yourself, take care of yourself, look around to your loved ones and figure out what's keeping them from seeking out preventive eye care if they happen to be at higher risk. And then everything that you've learned today, <laughs> um, you know, I say like spread the gospel of vision rehabilitation, you know, it's the more people know about it, the maybe it's a snowball effect and they'll tell other people about it. You know, I'll tell you this, and this is funny, like before I went to OT school, I ne had never met an OT. <laughs> hmm. And then once I learned about OT, these OTs were coming out of the woodworks. I kept meeting people like in grocery stores or like, oh, my cousin's an OT or yada, yada. It's just like, if you don't have these conversations, you never know where they're going to lead. Um, so just be out there, spread the word. And, and that's really all you can do. But take care of yourself, take care of your loved ones. And maybe they'll be able to do the same for their loved ones or their people. Thank you. Yeah, good, good advice, Omar. Very good advice. I am waiting to hear from other people as well. I'm sorry that we've been dominating all the conversations. Even if you have just a comment to make, Libby, thanks for all your comments. I think this is wonderful about, you know, when you pick and choose to use your white cane, to self-advocate, you know, ask a restaurant if they have an accessible menu, ask your pharmacist if there's a way that you can read the labels on your medicine bottles, because now there are some um, accessible strategies for doing that as well. Um, you know, you, you do have to advocate for yourselves. What, what other things, people on the call today, what other things are you doing or what other things would you like to see done to make your lives easier? Anybody out there want to make a comment or ask a question? And to unmute yourself, you can press the microphone on the bottom left of your screen, or you can press Alt plus A, or I believe it's Command Shift plus A on the Apple computer. And if you're on the phone, it's star six. Hi, Martha, go ahead. Yes, good morning. Um, I have a question concerning lighting. Uh, lighting in my bathroom is extremely um, bothersome. I have a problem when I'm trying to do just daily uh, routines, like putting on makeup and, you know, when I'm doing, uh, you know, squeezing toothpaste out of a tube, you know, I put way too much on the toothbrush instead just have a little bit. And I just wanted to know if there's anybody out there that can offer me any suggestions as to what they do um, in their bathroom and maybe even around their house as far as lighting that would make more um, easy to, to see Sorry. without creating a bunch of glare and you know maybe what kind of light they buy, just any suggestions that yeah, they might so be able to share. So certainly seeking out services from a, a low vision OT um, such as myself, I probably speak to everyone, every one of my patients about lighting for the first 20 minutes because lighting is the most important thing for many eye diseases. But then lighting is a double-edged sword because it can cause glare or sensitivity. But there are 
certainly things to consider with task lighting versus ambient lighting, color temperature, the distance at which, which the light is from your face, um, the way it casts shadows on your face. So without having seen your bathroom and knowing what your visual setup is or your, your condition, um, some general rules of thumb is, you know, lighting above head, direct lighting is going to cause glare, all right? If there's lamps off to the side and they're on both sides, it's not going to cause a shadow. It's going to evenly illuminate your face. Um, having diffusers or shades on top of that light will soften the light so it's not a direct source of light. You mentioned something earlier. I get too much toothpaste on the toothbrush. So uh, a very classic life hack that OTs may teach you about is, well, suck the toothpaste out of your tube, then start brushing your teeth. Because once you play that little dance of getting that toothpaste on the toothbrush, where is it going to end up? In our mouth, right? And right. so we can cut out the middleman and, and, and use these shortcuts. Um, but certainly working with a vision rehab specialist may kind of give you these insights and life hacks or let's call them compensatory techniques, but um, to, to make life a little bit easier. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Yeah, great question, Martha. Thank you. You're welcome. Anybody else out there who can make a comment? Anything you've done to make life easier for yourselves? Any strategies that you're using? Oh, I have one. One more. Go on, Go what on I, Martha. Go what on. I do is, and when I'm in the kitchen and I'm, I've actually memorized the burners on the stove so that I know the burners on the outside will, you know, have the burners come on in the front of the stove and the other one otherwise I'm sitting there trying to you know bend over looking at the burners what's front and back which I can't see and so it's easier for me if I just memorize the burners as to what side they are and then I just go in and you know act like a normal person it's great yeah there's there are many ways to do this Joe you have a Comment? Un unmute yourself. Alert. Audio now unmuted. Yeah, so I appreciate you know your suggestions, Martha. And just a kind of a quick plug for um, you know, the office that, that Sean heads up, our, our low vision learning center. Alert. So we, we we do have different um, um, new lighting that folks can take a look at if they do want to visit our center. Um, so that's that's definitely available and um I, I like the uh, the suggestion about the the lighting because that does make a big difference if people Alert. don't care about that very much. Left the um, so there was just that one comment. I had one other, but just escaped me right now. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah, no problem, Joe. Good comments. Good comments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there the three things we always focus on are you know lighting, yes. contrast, right, making things black on white enough or white on black if you're using digital things and then whatever strategies of magnification on white alert hand now raised and some are non-visual strategies like omar said you can you can skip the middleman with the, you don't have to put the toothpaste on the toothbrush you can put it on your finger if you don't want to put it straight in your mouth and you know you'll be more accurate getting toothpaste on your finger and then put your finger in your mouth and brush your teeth so just finding little things to get around the frustrating things, you know, things that you did automatically when you had good vision, 
you, you, you haven't had to think about what, what's an alternative way of doing this. And you still try to do it the way you did with your vision, but there might be a, a quick fix, a little shortcut that might do the trick just as easily and reduces that frustration, right? So don't underestimate all these little tips. And Joe, I know you have a lot of little tricks that you teach patients at the Low Vision Learning Center. Go on, I think you have another one for us. Alert, audio now unmuted. Uh, yes, and this is something that Martha brought up. Um, so just something is, is uh, little bump dots. It's a very simple thing um, where you would put like a little raised dot on things. Um, I encourage folks with sight to use them also. Um, like Martha mentioned that for um, cooking, for instance. So what a lot of folks might do, they might put something there, you know, on high and, and low and, you know, on their washing machines and dryers. Um, I think important is you don't have to have be blind to benefit from them. Uh, I think the folks that I noticed that have the best success are folks who, even though, you know, they're using their, their, their site as much as they can, but they're also augmenting it with different tactile things and options. So I really like this discussion, but that just wanted to mention, I mean, we have those at the center, but they're also very easy to get. And uh, it makes life a lot easier for folks um, if they're trying to find something in the dark, or just like you said, Martha, very important for safety purposes. You know, you don't want to bend over. Um, but anyway, thanks for that discussion. No, it's very good. Very good I made great big colorful ads for my kids for when I took them to all the. Anybody else? Anything you're doing? Any little strategies you've developed on your own? Any little tricks? that you're using to make life easier for yourselves that you want to share with the, with the audience today. Um, this is Sandy. Oh, Sandy. Okay, go ahead. Um, I'm going to answer a question, a couple questions back um, about advocating and, and um, the village of people involved in educating the public about low vision and rehabilitation. There are not enough people in the village who do orientation and mobility and occupational therapy rehabilitation for low vision. How can we increase that part of the village? I mean, I keep meeting people with low vision who have the need for rehabilitation, but they either the line is too long to get rehabilitation services or um, there are just not enough people offering it. Yeah. Uh, Omar, you addressed the, you suddenly met all sorts of OT people, but can you can please figure out how to convince a lot of them to go into low vision occupational therapy? I am absolutely working on that. Um, so uh, I've put together a group of low vision OTs to come together and take a look at our own subspecialty, like how many of us are out there? How many of us are going to retire in 10 or 15 years? What type of training did we need to get to where we felt confident to provide low vision services? Um, and how do we get this, get this next generation of occupational therapists or vision rehab to whoever, just to get excited about the field of low vision and 
I think once you're in it, you see the value and you see how wonderful, amazing it is and the people you get to meet and work with. Um, but it's, I think that when it comes to OT specifically, we're so ingrained in this model of physical rehabilitation and phys dis, as we call it, physical dysfunction. And um, uh, some people just don't think of eyes to that same extent as like, oh, I'm going to help someone walk. I'm going to help someone be able to do this or that. But we have to understand that sensory impairment is just as debilitating as physical impairments, if not worse in some ways. And so um, I don't know how to get more O&Ms into the field. I don't know how we can make O&M and low vision rehab um, sexy. Uh, and uh, like, but uh, talk to talk to programs. Uh, go into OT schools and O&M programs, uh, do a guest lecture, or even if you're a community advocate, you'd be like, hey, um, you know, we need more people in this field. We have a lot of people waiting to be seen, and there's an opportunity here for you. Um, you know, we also need to do our part in creating jobs. Um, we're very lucky in that the Duke Eye Center, there's myself, another OT. We actually have a therapy assistant and a part-time OT. And we've, we've grown in just the past couple of years. Um, and that's large part due to support from our administration and them seeing the value of what we have to offer and how happy our patients are um, and the feedback that they're getting. And for a long time, I thought it was about the money. They're like, oh, it's not gonna make us money. We're not sustainable, we are. <laughs> We're billing providers. We can absolutely cover ourselves and provide excellent quality care. Um, and so uh, sometimes there's administrative barriers. If there's no jobs, why would people go into it? Um, if it's not talked about, I was 25 when I first learned about OT. Like, and I grew up in a family full of physicians, which that shouldn't happen, but... <laughs> um, that's a great question. I really don't know how to answer it fully, but um, I know that I'm doing my part with kind of looking at my own subspecialty and my own profession. But as far as O&M, I don't know what the barriers are there or what the, the roadblocks are to getting more people into the profession. Um, you know, oftentimes like children of deaf adults go on to become interpreters, right? They were exposed to it early on. So I don't know, maybe it's just a matter if you saw an O&M growing up, you're like, that's what I wanna do in life, right? So maybe it's more exposure from an early age. Like I was exposed to people with low vision. So I was like, whoa, there's, there's a whole field here that I could potentially be a part of. So, um, so advocate, I guess, within your own communities or just convince every one of your family members and extended family members to, to choose these professions, I don't know. Well, Omar, thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank God you decided to go into OT and low vision rehabilitation. And um, hopefully you can inspire other OTs to do what you're doing and bring them along. Because like you said, the demand is just going to increase. And we're going to have to provide these services if we want people to continue to be self-sufficient, safe, and independent. So this has really been an absolutely wonderful discussion today. And since this recording is saved, it's something that hopefully other people will
come back to and listen to and think about not only just people who are visually impaired, but other people who are OTs or interested in perhaps low vision rehabilitation, you, you can now let them listen to this recording and see if, if it doesn't excite them to get into this field. I see now it's 1230. Um, so, so um, Sean, I'm going to turn it back to you for your final comments and whatever announcements are needed. Thank you, Omar. So thank you to everybody and thank you for this opportunity. Um, and thank you for all the great work that you're doing at POV. All right, thank you. Thank you again, Omar. Thank you, Dr. Alibi. Thank you, Dr. Nguyen for today. This was a really great conversation. I hope it opened up some ideas for folks on the call today. Um, and the recording will be available later this week and we'll send out a little announcement about that. Uh, also, final announcement, please consider signing up for POB Reads if you wanna be part of a, POB, uh, a um, Talking Books book club this summer. Again, you can visit pobreads.org or give our resource hotline a call at 301-951-4444.